Uh, well, Mark Dury, it's wonderful to uh, meet with you again and to uh, have another conversation about life and God and faith and what does it mean to follow Jesus in this world that we're living in. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to talk all things COVID and uh, our response as Christians. So, um, how is COVID affecting you? What's your current thinking about COVID? Um, where are you at in this space? Well, Mark, I must admit, uh, my wife Debbie and I have been pleasantly uh, ensconced in the country <laughs> nice. where, where there have been few infections and uh, we have a large block to roam around on. And, and day to day, we've actually felt really blessed and not blessed not to be in a big city. Um, so it's not been a hush 18 months, but we're very aware that the world has been doing it tough. We've lost dear friends overseas who died. Um, right. And, um, yeah, and I feel really, I felt really burdened for countries like Indonesia and India that have lost many, many thousands of people. Um, yeah. I suppose the big thing for me has just been to think through the enormity of what's happening and to understand it and, um, so that's been on my mind a lot. And I yeah. think people have really struggled with this. It's, it's the, the, there's been a lot of fear. Yep. Um, and that'd be something good for us to talk about, you know, how does the nations yeah. respond to fear? But I think the, the reality I'm coming to terms with is that this is a whole new layer of, uh, endemic infection that we're going to need to live with. It's not just going to dissipate after a year or two, like, like flu, right. flu, uh, varieties yeah. tend to do. They, they have a kind of, they go all out for a year and then they sort of fade away. But it looks like COVID's not like that. Um, and we've discovered that even immunity from catching the disease goes away. It's a bit like the common mm. cold, you know, which I think that the immunity for, for cold variety lasts for a couple of years, but this seems to be kind of weakening in six months yeah. and, and the vaccines only last for six months. And and so it looks as though we've got a whole new disease that, that's going to be with us forever and is going to be targeting all ages, but particularly older people. And it yeah. looks like the only option we have, the best option we have is just to get vaccine shots every six months. And uh, so that's, that's a very big, a very big shift. You know, we haven't, we haven't had something quite like this ever before. I mean, we've, we fought against things like polio and uh, smallpox and yeah. massive, you know, campaigns, sometimes compulsory vaccination of, you know, there was a time when you couldn't go to school if you didn't have a polio injection, for example, a vaccine. So, right. but that was in Australia. Yeah. That was in Australia. Yeah. But, but yeah. Um, because so many kids died from it and were crippled. Yeah. Uh, my aunt was crippled by polio. And, wow. But, um, but no, this is a whole new thing. So I think, we, I think people in the West are used to controlling their world and yeah. um, they, they believe that our, we're getting our control is increasing all the time. We have more and more yeah. mastery of our environment and technology. But in this particular issue, despite throwing billions of dollars at it, we're really facing something that we cannot really in the end completely control. And that's, um, that's really disturbing for people. Yeah. Can I just back up a little bit? Um, where are you getting your information about this? Because one of the things that's interesting for me, I mean, I, I agree with your overall, overall analysis. I also made the point offline that we're not doctors. Uh, you're not a medical doctor. I'm not a medical doctor. We're not epidemiologists. We're not microbiologists. 
Um, so at one level, we're not experts, but, but, you know, there's a lot of information out there. And one of the things, one of the challenges is where is when that information source is contested. So how have you gone about gathering information on this? Um, That's a really good question. And one of the problems in our current environment with so much fear running around is that people are uh, suspicious of information. Mm. They doubt information and there's a lot loss of trust and, and the proliferation of, of, of um, streams of information through social media and otherwise has made it harder, not easier. Um, I think one thing that I found really helpful is, is to look at the, the findings of what's been happening in Israel, because it's the first uh, population to have a very high level uh, of vaccination. And they're in a way into the second, third round of that yeah. process. Yes. And one of the things they discovered is that um, uh, quite a lot of their people in hospitals have been vaccinated and then they get sick. Um, I think at one point there was 60, not front long ago, 60% of people in hospital had been That's vaccinated. Right. But, but there's statistics can kind of mess with your head sometimes. And when you look at it more carefully, uh, what you find is that for Israeli adults under 50, um, people who are not vaccinated are 12 times as likely to end up in hospital. And for people um, that are over 70, I think it's like seven times as likely if you're not vaccinated. Now, this is, this is a result of, um, you might call it an experiment, but it's applied to millions of people. Mm. And so what that's showing us is that basically, uh, if you have the vaccination, the, the Pfizer, and I think the figures for AstraZeneca and other contexts look similar, um, it, it does protect you significantly from, from getting seriously sick and dying. In Australia, 1.5% of people have been diagnosed to died and 4% have end up, ended up in intensive care. So if you can reduce that, for example, under 50s, reduce it uh, to a factor of 12, you know, you, yeah. you, 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 that's a huge, that's a huge difference. So, so I think that those, those figures from Israel have really persuaded me that the vaccination um, is, is, is valuable for reducing the likelihood yeah. of getting seriously ill or, or uh, ending up in intensive care or dying. So what would you say to somebody who said, look, uh, the disease itself is not that serious? Like if the excess mortality rate for last year was 5 million or even 10 million, if the 10 million extra people died last year in a global population of 80 billion, uh, that's a rounding error. What's the problem with that? Uh, why lock down the whole world? Why spend billions and billions of dollars uh, on a you know, on a vaccine that doesn't seem to really work. So what's a Christian? So it's, it's very interesting to me to think about what is it, how do you as a Christian think about the cost benefit? I mean, there's a, there's a dismissal or dismissiveness about the data and the seriousness, but, but even then you think, well, what, what is an acceptable, how do you measure risk cost benefits to this? How would you address someone who said, oh, it's only, it's only, Five million or ten million people have died. Why lock down the country and ruin my life because of this? I, I have some sympathy for that, and yeah. um, people die all the time in a society. I'm not sure how many in Australia—one hundred and seventy thousand a year or something. So it's a lot of death, and yeah. we've had a thousand COVID deaths. So it's a tiny proportion of the yeah. total. Um, and but the thing is, what you need to understand is that managing death is is a big business. It's it's a it costs a lot of money and a lot of effort goes into it. So. 
Um, we we have law courts that deal with the states. We have um, hospitals and, <laughs> and, and we have undertakers. And this whole system is designed to work at a certain rate, at a certain right. speed, if you like. Um, and if you if you start tweaking that and you get surges, so you suddenly got triple the amount of people in intensive care, that is very serious. And not just for the people who are sick uh, in, with COVID. Yeah. Um, there are lots of really negative consequences that start happening. I, I remember I used to live in an Indonesian village and if someone died, they, they didn't have the money to go to the doctor. They just dug a hole in the ground and put them in the ground. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think a society like that could cope with the loss of 5%. I mean, it would be devastating, but yeah. they would bury people and, and move on. And because they, they, they build their own coffins and they dig their own hole and they have their own ceremonies yeah. and it's just done. But if, if you're trying to, um, to provide intensive care to people, uh, you have the, the situation where you need three times as many intensive care beds as you've got. You have yeah. the problem that doctors and medicos are getting sick in high numbers. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the UK, a thousand medical staff have died from COVID, uh, almost certainly from, from working in the hospitals. Yeah. And they get exhausted and, and worn out. Yeah. I mean, we, Australia intensive care beds, you know, we run, I think, at about 60 or 70% normally of, of capacity. Hmm. But the real problem is there just aren't enough doctors. So yep. what's going to happen when you're in the middle of a COVID surge is that you have a heart attack and you, you call and you call an ambulance and the ambulance turns up two hours later. Yeah. And I'm sorry, we were just hearing with all the COVID cases. So That's right. Or, you, or you've got cancer and you need... Um, urgent surgery to save your life. I'm sorry, you can't because all our intensive beds are taken and the hospital system's not working. So you have all these downstream effects in our, in our culture. We are not used to managing death at that rate. <laughs> that, that's a fascinating, that's exactly, it seems to me from talking to my friends in the medical system, uh, that's exactly right. And the, the burden we put on the on the doctors and and just the simple fact to train a specialist doctor, an anaesthetist or a, an intensive care specialist, that's a 10 to 15 year pipeline. Like if you bunch of those people die, it there's, there's actually becomes a systemic shortage that puts the whole population at greater risk. So it is a challenge. So I, one of the things I was thinking about as you were talking was, um, I mean, there were, there were, the issue of death and dying, like as Christians, we have a particular view of this, don't we? That shapes, it should, it should free us from fear uh, and, and the fear-driven response. So um, I have a very dear friend who's part of our church who's uh, on dialysis and he's lived without kidneys for the last eight years and he's... Uh, and he's the most incredibly resilient, wonderful human being. And one of the things that confuses the doctors and the people caring for him is he's genuinely unafraid of dying. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to him mm. in his care uh, without kidneys and on dialysis. And so I wondered, what are, you, what are your thoughts about what this has exposed in our culture about our fear of death and, and the sort of the, the response that's, that that generates in us? Well, I think our culture does struggle with death. Um, it's it's not a normal part of our life, except at the very end of life, you know, amongst the elderly. I remember once when I was in um, pastoral ministry as a curate my first year, I did the funeral of a man called Mark, who was my age. I was uh, 40, 41 at the time. He had the same name as me. 
He had three small children just like me. And he died um, on a plane flight coming back from New York to Melbourne. Wow. And um, his wife said he had a heart attack. But when I told my wife, Debbie, the circumstances that he'd been on a flight, she said, oh, it's probably a flying clot. And sure enough, it was. He'd he'd had a clot. And what was really striking about that funeral is the biggest funeral I've ever taken. There were more than 300 people and this huge network of people in their 40s uh, and mm. friends of similar age were, were just overwhelmed by the loss of this man. But on the other hand, I've done many funerals for people in their 80s and 90s with 20 or 30 people turn up, you know, the grandchildren and, yeah. and a few nephews. And so, you know, to die out of control, you know, in, in, we're not supposed to die. Yeah. We, you know, we had this idea that there's certain there's certain proper death and then there's improper death. And, right. And, yep. and this is shocking, you know, that, that, um, that death would intervene <laughs> in our life. So I think from a Christian point of view, we understand that death is part of life. It's 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 one of the kind of curses of of of, of the of the world. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we're not afraid of it. I I um I was really moved once reading a story. You mentioned someone on dialysis. Reading a story about John Wimber in the UK. He was doing some preaching and teaching, and a young man came to him who was desperate to be healed, and he he basically his kidneys had failed. He was absolutely yeah. desperate to be healed, and. And John Wimber, you know, and his team, they did see a lot of miraculous healings in their ministry. But he ended up speaking with the young man about not what he called it, not clinging to the wrapper. So he, um, hmm. he said, you know, do you have milk in your fridge? He said, the young man said, yes. He said, what do you do when the milk is finished? You, you know, what do you do with the carton that it came in? He said, oh, you throw it out. And um, John Wimber said, you know, I think you're clinging to your carton. And wow. we shouldn't cling to the carton because when when we're finished hmm. in this world, the, the carton goes. But but that's not the end of the story for us. Yeah. So we shouldn't cling to the wrapper. And, and I think whether you're frightened of COVID or you're frightened of the vaccination, you know, the, this is not this is not the authentic stance of a Christian, I think, yeah. to, to live in fear like that. Or you're frightened of the uh, therapeutic totalitarianism of the government overreaching and using this as an excuse to erode all our civil liberties, and it, it's the end of the world as we know it. So, um, and and you get that from from all sides of politics, and you get that from Christians in a particular yeah a particular way of framing church and state and the end times that leads to this yeah. suspicion of government and deep fear. So. I mean, I, the problem when we're scared, right, is we, we don't think clearly, our trust goes down, we're, we're responding from our amygdala, it's just adrenaline, and as I said to a friend, we're not, we don't bring our best selves to the party. Yeah, um, that's true. And, and I see that everywhere, right? I don't know about you, but um, the level of uh, division, of lack of respect, of imputing negative motives to people who disagree with you on a number mm. of these things is extraordinary. I mean, how, yeah, what, what's, what's been your experience of that? And how do you, how do we as a, well, we can take it a big level. How does a culture do we solve this? But then in the, you know, what do you do in a church where people might have different views on the strongly held, uh, motivated by fear, perhaps we think it's fear, they think it's entirely reasonable. So what's been your experience and how do you, how do you suggest yeah. we might navigate this? Well, I think there's a breakdown of trust uh, right across the West at the moment. 
uh, or in these last decades, and it's gotten worse. And and people do sense the the threat of a totalitarian state, and with cancel culture and the increasing marginalisation of Christians, and often even to outright persecution, discrimination. So, I think Christians' um, kind of antenna are up. Yeah. But 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 they become hypersensitive sometimes, and that can mm. trigger a, a fear response that's not that's not helpful. And uh, I think. I think it's important to affirm that there are serious reasons to be concerned about the trend of our society. Mm. Um, uh, totalitarian regimes can arise in contexts where previously there'd been freedom, and every generation has to reclaim um, freedom and, yeah. and, and fight for it. And so I think that's an important battle to, to have. And there are many issues that we could pick up to engage with um, but I think that vaccination is probably not the most impressing one. You know that right. it's it's not a fundamental. I don't think a fundamental assault on their civil liberties uh, to put some incentives on a population to be vaccinated. It's um, there are many other things that are more important. In some ways, it's I'm concerned that Christians will in fact lose their voice, lose their credibility yeah. by nailing their colours to this particular mast. I mean. I think back in previous generations, during plagues or, or times of serious crisis, Christians were known as the ones who would have the courage to go and care for people. Yeah, that's right. And risk themselves to 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 support and care for people in need, not yep. um, kind of bunk, hunkering down. So um, that's well, troubling. So what's changed? So yeah, and and more than that, Christians in a previous generation were very pro science. And pro-medicine, we built hospitals and we vaccinated people out of, and, and we did all the modern science, evidence-based, best we could healthcare around the world. So mm -hmm. something has shifted in the concern. I think you're spot on. The concern for me is we, um, we actually, as Christians, we, we marry our faith to a very untrusting, skeptical, unscientific, reactionary worldview. And that's a problem because... That's not actually us. That's not a good witness, is it, to yeah. Yeah. to Jesus? I think that's that's there is a there's a there's a there's a loss of confidence in in knowledge. Yeah, um, there's a loss of confidence in expertise. Everything is becoming ide ideological. And where where does that come from? Well, it's it's partly influenced by I think the de the, the deconstruction process of, of postmodernism, which yeah. treats knowledge as personal and, and um, and individualistic, um, and I think Christians have been influenced by that, and and mm -hmm. that's been costly. I think part of the problem is the individualism of, of Western culture. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on rights in people's hearts and minds, and not a lot on responsibilities. And they're very suspicious of appeals to responsibility. Yeah, but you know, I think in more Confucian-based cultures or many. Um, uh, cultures in, the, in what's called the global south, uh, the communitarian concerns are, are much are much stronger. You know, if you tell all the people in yeah. Hong Kong or Macau that they should get vaccinated, they'll say, "Okay, we need to do that to yep. protect the elderly." But in the West, um, there's a tendency to see this as a, as a personal infringement on my human rights, and and so I, I and I think also because there's so much anxiety about identity politics, cancel culture. 
the progressive worldview, which which sometimes can really despise Christianity. This this particular issue has been picked up as this kind of a safe thing to get upset about. Right. Um, and so that's a it's a sort of an escape valve, a release valve for all these fears and anxieties and. And, and you know that's I think that's that's troubling. I mean, I think what Christians need to come back to is um, what does it mean to love your neighbour as yourself? You know, what yep. what does it mean <laughs> to care for the others around you, and how do we live that out? That that's that needs to be something we wake up in the morning and ask: What is the, how can I care for my neighbour, and who is my neighbour? I um. I've been reading, uh, and I'm not very far into it, uh, but I've been reading Augustine's City of God okay. because I think it's, it seems pretty, um, pretty. I mean, like, gosh, he was pretty smart, you know. I mean, like, seriously, there's nothing humbles you like reading something written in 411 AD and going, it would be very hard to uh, understand the human condition and the world, even that I live in today, better than he understood it back then. Like, it's. It's yeah. fascinating. But he has this critique of um, the Romans and the Christians who benefited so greatly from the Romans. And he, go, he basically says to the Christians in Rome, um, really all you guys are upset about is that you've lost all the nice things of Rome. <laughs> and and you're, not, you're not really concerned about, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're, what's driving your complaint about the loss of Rome is the loss of your own luxuries. Not the, you're not thinking about it as a Christian. So... Um, and and this is in the context of a of, of a wonderful pastoral advice to women, virgins, and maidens who've been you know raped in the course of the sack of Rome. Like it's quite an extraordinary bit of pastoral writing. And I thought to myself, I, as a follower of Jesus, I actually shouldn't be as concerned about the loss of my liberties and my luxuries and the way of life that I've had up to now. And and I shouldn't be that fearful that it's been lost or that angry that someone might take it away. But as you say, to wake up and go, actually, this is just an enormous opportunity under God to, to, to get clarity on what really matters and my lack of control and my need to rest in him as my great shepherd. And, and then, and then my need to wake up as you say every morning and say, really what life is about is about loving my neighbor and, and doing good in this world. It's not about particular you know, 21st century life of ease and prosperity and luxury. No, that would be to, to focus on that would be to cling to the rapper too. Yeah. To focus on your, your car or your freedom and, and so on. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a serious issue. I mean, I think Christians are, are, are going through a, a, a huge trial and the trial is not of overt persecution, although that could mm -hmm. come and we should prepare our church for persecution. Yeah. The trial is, you know where is our focus, and where do we see our identity, and, yeah, right. and how do we how do we live that out? Um, and I've, I've I've been vaccinated. I'm in process to get the AstraZeneca. I'll get the next one later. And for me, it was the decision of not causing my neighbours harm. I accept that there's a risk, one in a million perhaps, yeah. of dying from a blood clot. And um, but but uh, you know I I I think it's for me. I think it's the caring thing to do um, to to reduce my uh, the likelihood of me getting seriously ill or dying because of its impact on other people. Yeah. Also, I don't want to take hospital places that others would need. I don't want to put medical staff, ambos, paramedics at risk or to exhaust them and make them want to quit and retire because they can't cope with the trauma. Yeah. 
I don't want to cause the state to have to spend a lot of money on my care that I could easily prevent mm -hmm. um, by by being by being vaccinated. Um, so hmm. all, all those things for me um, are fairly uh, are fairly clear. You know, one of the things about I've thought a lot about Jesus when he said, "Love your neighbours yourself." He was yeah. he was quoting from the Torah where it it was particularly that phrase was used about the poor and the aliens, the vulnerable people. Yeah. And basically saying, you know, in the great process of society and politics and culture and everything, there are some people who are vulnerable and they, they are at risk and they are the sick, you know. Yeah. They are the people who are laying down their lives for others too, caring for the sick in the hospitals. And we need to love those people and we need to care for them. So for me, the decision to be vaccinated comes out of, out of that. It's actually not about whether I trust everything the government says. It's not about whether I'm happy with Daniel Andrews or, you know, with yeah. Gladys or whatever. Yeah. That, that's not the issue. Um, yeah. It's not the issue of whether I'm, I'm concerned about what's happening in our society and the trend that we're going. I am concerned about it. The mm. fundamental issue for me is uh, should I be taking a hospital bed that I could easily not take if I, if I get vaccinated? Should I be adding to the incredible load that's a, that's about to break over the, the heads of the medical staff yeah. on the front line. And, and what, what freedom do I have to make that choice? And what's interesting is um, your decision to get vaccinated and mine, I've been uh, vaccinated with AstraZeneca. Um, it's a, it is a step of faith, like, like really any action is, because we don't, there's a, I've had this discussion with people. Well, we don't know that we don't know that it's absolutely safe. You know, it hasn't been finally tested, and all you, you hear all of this, and um, and it comes down to well, you we we live on a web of trust all the time, mm. and you have to, as best you can, under God, assess, think, and then avoid this. Um, how shall I put it? I think fear-driven, selfish hermeneutic of suspicion that, mm. that has infected us, right? And if we go back to the history of ideas, it's as you said that postmodern. It's it's all Foucault's fault, right? Like everything's about power. Everyone's out to get us. You can't trust anyone. So you're just no, no. I know that getting vaccinated, this may not. There is a logical possibility, of course, that these, this vaccine will be worse for me than COVID. That's true. In the same way that I know it's a logical possibility that God might not exist. That's true. You know, and it, it exists. But but still on balance of probabilities, you go, this actually I think is really makes an enormous amount of sense. Yeah. Uh, look, we live with risk all the time. Yeah. Uh, we when we drive the car, we, we we take risks. Just breathing and living involves risks of different kinds. Uh, getting married oh. is a risk, having children is a risk. And we live with risks, but for various reasons, this particular risk has, has kind of blown blown the gasket for people. And we've allowed fear to become a dominant yeah. thing. I mean, for me, from a rational point of view, the way I think this through is actually tens and tens of millions have taken the AstraZeneca yeah. vaccine. If this is, you know, people say there should be more trials. Actually, the trial is 100 million people. And... <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think we, by now, the medicos do have a fairly good sense, at least what the short-term impact of the disease is. And that's why I think actually the risks are very low. And I yeah. think that's that's a realistic and reasonable, it's reasonable to trust that report. But did you find, did when, 
See, the difference for me was when you choose to get the vaccine, you are choosing positively a risk, one in a million. And I remember sitting with the doctor going, one in a million. And I got vaccinated pretty early because I'm a, I mean, I'm a vaccine fan. I'm a medical science fan. I'm like, man, if it moves, <laughs> vaccinated, you know, like I've just seen the benefit growing up in Africa with, you know, two generations, my mom and my grandfather before me working in public health. I'm just like, these are, this is a modern miracle. It's a great gift from God. So let's go. But there still was, it felt different that positively saying I'm doing something that might kill me versus I can sit back and think that I'll be okay. If I get COVID, it probably won't get to me. Like there's a path. So our ability to assess risk is inadequate. We, we weigh these things differently, which seems to be important for a lot of people. I think I, I found the Bible really helpful. Um, because the Torah speaks about managing risk for your neighbor in a number of different ways. For example, if you dig a hole and don't put a, um, a cover over the hole and the person falls in, you're legally res hmm. responsible or, or their, you know, their, their, their cow falls in and gets hurt. You know, you're, you're meant to you're meant to take care according to the Torah to prevent accidents to other people. And you have a, um, a liability just by living. You're meant to not do things that will endanger your neighbor. And I think the reality is that although we have trouble quantifying it and thinking it through, is that if, you know, 20% of the population refuses to be vaccinated and yeah. then someone dies of a heart attack because there's no ambos that can reach them in time, that 20% of people is responsible for that person's death. And yeah. it's very hard for people to own that kind of level of responsibility, but it's mm. as real as the responsibility mm. of, getting vaccinated and then suffering from a, a rare complication of the vaccination. And I think we need to think of our duty of care towards others, not just in terms of the direct consequences of our personal actions, but also the indirect, the for yeah. us unintended consequences of our inaction or um, that, that is just as, just as morally culpable, I think. Hmm. I mean, I, if someone gets sick and dies and leaves their, their children without a mother or their grandchildren without a grandfather um, and causes a, a great deal of cost to the family through through not being vaccinated, then they have a responsibility for that. For that. Um, and we need, that's, that's where the kind yeah, of more humanitarian, wow. mm. you know, responsibility for others needs to inform our thinking, not just I'm only held culpable for Correct. my personal decisions and what happens in my life. That is not the way the Bible speaks about yeah. loving your neighbor as yourself. That's brilliant. And that's so helpful because, I mean, it's funny. I find under threat, we become very self-absorbed. It's about us, right? So I was reading um, Dallas Willard has this great book called A Life Without Lacquer, Meditation on Psalm 23, which is, hmm. I mean, that's the psalm for the moment. And it's the, I think it's the book for the moment. But Willard says, it's like when you hit your thumb with a hammer, all you can think about is the pain in your thumb uh, and the hurt. And, and he says the thing in life is we all are hurt. And so our tendency is to just focus on our own hurt and our own pain. But actually what we need to do, and, and COVID has inflicted a world of hurt, both real yes. and imagined, a world of loss, even if, I mean, the loss and the grief culturally is just, enormous. I, I don't think we can overstate that all around the world, even if you haven't lost to death someone you know, not being able to see your 
kids and your grandkids and not being able to travel and losing your job and so on. But, but we're all in this situation where we're running around with a, with a sore thumb and we're hurting. So we become selfish and we reduce our responsibility to, to ourselves. And, and, and what Willard says and what is so helpful is you've got to set your minds on things that you've got to set your mind on things above. You've yes. got to set your mind on Christ. You need a, that freedom of self forgetfulness that, uh, pull. And it's, for me, I have this, this image for myself of, dragging my thoughts and my minds and my preoccupation, my focus away from me and my concerns and how I'm going and how my family's going and my head going. No, no, it's like actually think about someone else for God's sake. <laughs> think about someone yeah. else. Yeah. yeah I, I was speaking to someone recently who's, um, he's had trouble with anxiety and one of the effects of the, uh, of the lockdowns has been an increase in, in panic attacks and, Difficulties mm -hmm. of speaking about that, like the need to try and reset your thinking and, and reaffirm your identity in Christ and to use all your resources, yeah. you know, spiritually to stand against that inclination to, to fear, not yeah. to partner with it or allow it to um, take over your life. But I think people have been conditioned by fear responses. And sometimes our leaders have spoken about COVID as a kind of evil enemy that has to be yeah. defeated. And that's, yeah. that's not been a great you know, a great way of presenting it. You know, you don't think that's helpful. <laughs> there is evil. It's real. There is evil. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, the line between good and evil runs yeah. down every human heart. It's out there, but it's it's, it's to actually to actually wander around in fear that COVID will get you is yeah. um, is not a great not a great way to motivate people in this time. Well, it's it works short term, but long term, it's terribly damaging, isn't it? That's right. Uh, what so. That, do you think Satan is at work in COVID? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think, well, I think in the, from a biblical perspective, the reality of disease and sickness is part of the fallenness of the world. And I think uh, death is Satan's um, prerogative in a way, like that's his, um, that's his weapon. Uh, yeah. And so I think the very nature of sickness and disease is tied into the work of Satan. Secondly, I think there's an opportunity here for Satan to inflict people with fear and anxiety yeah. and um, to confuse them and overwhelm them and to mm. cause breakdown between in relationships. So I, I mm. see kind of lots of spiritual challenges associated with the, all the multiple effects of COVID on our, on our lives. And um, I think it's really important for us as Christians to keep, keep coming back to the word of God, to the scripture and to, um, kind of think through the, the, the circumstances we're facing in terms of a, of a biblical frame and, uh, and not to kind of respond in a panicked way or, mm -hmm. or, or, or even just start fighting. You know, when we're in crisis, <laughs> one response is to fight, another is to yeah. flight, another is to lick the, the boots of the person that's threatening you. Yeah. Um, but these are not, these, this is not how, how we should be responding. We need to kind of, you need to realize who we are in Christ, our freedom that we have, think through in a sort of sane and careful way uh, what our responsibilities are towards ourselves, towards others and towards God and to, and to act kind of calmly accordingly. Which is fascinating. Um, I, you know, in Ephesians it says, in your anger, do not sin, do not give Satan a foothold. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just think, I reckon... I, I don't need Satan. I mean, I can I can sin without Satan. <laughs> I've no trouble doing that, right? But I do look at this culturally, and it's like a 
it's not a foothold. It's a jolly ledge. It's a, it's a base camp that in one sense we can give Satan and, and the forces of evil in our lives and our communities because of our, the fear, because of our response. So we get this thing, we respond. And, and, and one of the things that I've seen, and I'd love your thoughts on this, um, is, is I reckon Satan loves to bring division. So in, in families and relationships, if, if God's plan for us is to love and to be united um, uh, in, in relationships of mutual care and respect and trust, man, I, COVID has blown that apart in so many ways. And I think there's, there's Satan's at work in that. So how do you, you're not a pastor anymore. You're not, or you're, you are, you're always, a, but you're not pastoring, leading a local congregation. How do you, what advice do you have for someone like me where, where this is, the divisions around this are potentially substantial and the, the rupture in relationship can be enormous because people hold some views on this very strongly and it's, and it's immensely painful to see that. So, so. Yeah, that's really, that's really difficult. I think, I mean, one response is to pray, I think for, for understanding and peace. I'd, I'd be teaching people about the importance of listening to each other without condemning each other and not, not judging and not also not letting fear shut down your relationships with other people. You know, there are things mm -hmm. that are worth kicking someone out of the church for. <laughs> yeah. But, but a different view on vaccinations isn't one of them. And but what if the government makes us kick someone out of the church because they're not vaccinated? Isn't that a good question? Yeah. What do I, I do? Um, Tell me. Well, the rabbis complained recently because boxing matches were allowed, but, but synagogue oh, no. worship wasn't. And I think they have a really legitimate point. And, and, but the first step in that sort of circumstance is to, is to do what they're doing and speak to the government. It's not to break the law. Yep. I, I, that's the Daniel one response. You know, you're making us eat all this food. It's not good for us. Let's try vegetables instead. Yeah. Um, so, um, before you actually say, you know, we're going to engage in civil disobedience and break unjust laws. Um, the first step is to actually use the process mm. and work with the process. I, I think that's really biblical, you know, in, in Jeremiah, um, 29, it says, seek the well-being of the city. Yeah. And part of that, this is to the Jews in exile. And part of that is to um, affirm and work with the processes that God has put in place in the society and not to have a completely kind of negative view of, of, yeah. of those structures. Um, I, I have to keep reminding myself that when, when Paul says that the authorities that exist have been established by God in Romans 13, he was speaking about um, the emperor Nero, Mm. Um, and that's that's the context in which he was functioning. So, you know, our first inclination should be to work through due process. Um, I'm, I'm completely a believer in in civil disobedience under certain circumstances. Right. I, I do not believe yep. that we should follow every unjust law. And I think we actually need to be training our young people to to, to stand in the face of persecution. Yeah. And to be able to take a stand, but. Um, I think the first the first step is if, if if the government says you can't go to church unless you've got a vaccine passport, I think I'd be my first step would be to say, uh, well, how long will this last? I think you know is this a, is this a temporary thing? Is it going to go on? Yes. Um, but also, how can I reach people who aren't coming to church? Yeah. You know, what opportunities do I have to share the gospel or care for people who aren't able to be here? Um, I'd like to express my concern to the government about this and the implications in terms of people's mental health and well-being. But basically yeah. that restriction, you know, not attending a football match and 
not going to a pub, not going to a church. People aren't thinking that up in order to persecute Christians. You know, this is not no, an that's attempt. Right. No. To, it, it's an attempt to save people's lives. It's correct. It's an attempt to help us act responsibly. So I'm not very happy about people being excluded from church, but I think your your initial response should be, how can we reach people? How can we care for people? How can we try and work with the government on this? Um, yeah. And the authorities need to be worked with and respected, not automatically just fought against. Um, if, if, if they let a boxing match happen or a football team, you know, meet, but not a, not a home church group, I would be very angry about that. And I'd express that publicly to the government and say, this is wrong. You're actually verging on discrimination. And, it, but that, that even that would not necessarily be the right time to, to break the law. Mm. That's a very, that's a very different kind of decision that needs, that needs to be made. Um, by weighing up, you know, just how important is this to, is this the hill to die on? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, particularly because one might find oneself agreeing with the public health um, rationale for the decision, right? Yeah. So you'd uh, say, well, meeting, meeting in person is a lovely thing, but actually if we, yeah, you might, you might choose to do that. You might find yourself, um, in a very divided congregation, you know, because what's going to happen in New South Wales, at least, is, you know, we hit 70% double vaccination and uh, the government said, well, then, the, you know, they are using, you, you know, very strong social pressure to mobilise people to get vaccinated. So, okay, if you're not double vaccinated at the 70% rate, you can't come to church. Yeah, my... Um, but my initial response to that is I didn't, I wasn't very happy about it because I thought actually the people are actually putting themselves at risk more than anybody else because mm. the vaccine, um, the main point of the vaccine is to save your life when you're vaccinated. And so yes. why can't people put their own lives at risk if they Correct. wish? Um, so that was my first response. And I don't like people restricting freedom of worship. It, it, it's sort of smacks of kind of some mm. sort of Stalinist regime or something. But, mm. but but as I thought about it more, I thought, well, actually, you're not just putting yourself at risk by not being vaccinated. You're you're putting medical staff at risk. You're yeah. putting other people who are sick at risk. You're you're incurring a cost on the society. And imagine the pastor that decides to break, you know, the, the, that and 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 just welcome people at church, and and three or four of his elderly people get who are not vaccinated get very sick. And then they die, and he's saying, "Oh, I still did the right thing." You know, yeah. <laughs> this is that's a, you should be really thinking through very carefully whether you want to be that pastor in that situation. <laughs> well, all the old <laughs> doesn't take me long to go. Oh, not so sure. The other <laughs> thought is, um, well, we shouldn't open then until everybody can come. So we should stay shut for everybody until we get a change of policy, so everyone can attend. Um, yeah, that's a sort of solidarity, suffering through yeah. solidarity. But I, again, the, the question for the church is how do we build up the church? How do we mm. how do we build up the saints to do the work of ministry? And I think we should take all available means to us. So we shouldn't mm. neglect those that can't come to church. We have to provide a church for them. Um, yeah. And even if it's through Zoom or other means or through phoning people, I'd, instead of instead of inciting people to be actively anxious and angry about the government, incite them to be calling on their neighbours in distress and taking food packs to them and, 
give them yeah. kind of encouragement, find creative ways, put the brain power to work yeah. to how to reach <clears> people. <throat> there must be lots of isolated people at the present time. Enormous uh, in numbers. The, in the yeah. cities. And, and uh, you know, other churches really, you can get an exemption to care for people uh, to be out and about. Yeah. And are, we, are we actually doing that? This, this is what we should be thinking about, you know, not thinking, Oh, you know, we'll we'll just cut off our nose to spite yeah. our face. You know, this is this is not a great. I don't think it's a great response. Yeah. I, I mean, I I do find all these things really difficult. So I'm really sympathetic with yes. the view that we can't trust government. I'm really sympathetic with the view that there's hostility to the to Christians in our culture. Um, these are really important issues, but to to fight this particular battle in this way, I think is just runs against the fundamental call on Christians' lives to love our neighbours as ourselves and to work with the authorities and to seek to do good to other mm. people as much as we can. I think one of the other things that I've been thinking about is what does this discussion reveal about how we think of church? You know, so I go to church. Church is this, this good, this positive thing that I consume and on a Sunday. And look, it is, but, but there's so much more I had this discussion earlier this week with someone where I was saying that church is not Sundays. I mean, it's great. Like some, I'm a big fan of meeting together in a large group, but actually church is a spiritual family and there's so much more to it, as you've just said, that we can express and live and uh, and work together in than just Sundays. So um, I'm interested in what that's exposing in our hearts about what do we actually think church is? Yes, well, I think a biblical perspective is that it is the people of God ministering and equipping each other. Mm. And one way they do that is to meet together in the presence of the Lord, to be informed and equipped and trained and recharged and to love each other. But there are other ways to express that communal connection uh, and there are other ways to be gathered. And we've been using those ways, but we, we could use them more. And, yeah, it's... Yeah, it, it, it's it's become personal, you know, individually personal. This is an affront to me, an attack on me. Yeah. But actually we should flip it and say, how can I love my neighbor as myself? How can I, who are the people who are really vulnerable in this circumstance? And what can I do to improve their mm. circumstances? And I think before we start protesting about this or that, we need to say, are we, are we actually owning that responsibility we have to, to love others around us? Yeah. So um, I had a conversation with someone who said, uh, well, so if I turn up at church and, uh, and I'm not vaccinated, will you, will you turn me away? Will you lock me out? And, uh, and I said, well, if you want to practice civil disobedience, I'd be very happy to let you in. If we decided you would be welcome to come to church and unvaccinated. But I'd also ask you to um, pay the fine that you will get for breaching the public health order for yourself and for the church and for anyone else who was caught up in that. Um, and we quickly decided that this was not the time for civil disobedience of that nature. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I think the rabbis were saying, look, it's really wrong to put us in the position of being policemen yeah. for who can come to church or not. And yeah. I, I mean, my inclination would be to just ask people to sign a document to say that they're vaccinated or whatever if, as a condition of entering, but but not to, um, or to tell them that if they're not vaccinated, they should leave immediately. 
we yeah. can't necessarily unless you have someone at the door checking their vaccine passport which perhaps that's what the government wants but it's that is really that is um you know that, that is it, that is, it really is what they want i gather and i think they're going to try and and, and all the small businesses are, try, are having the same issue you know you go into the bottle shop and you know does the guy have to check your vaccine passport yeah probably you, I mean, <laughs> yeah well that's right so yeah, there's some challenges I, there. I have a question for you, Mark. Yeah. You know, I know you did a few years of medical training and, you know, that's been one of the formative yeah. influences on yeah. your life. And I was thinking about the huge cost of medical care, you know, how much it costs to care for someone in um, in intensive care. And I was thinking about the morality of that. Like if someone refuses to be vaccinated um, and they end up in intensive care, mm -hmm. not just they but other people that they've infected, um, should they be... I mean, it seems cruel, but should they be liable for those costs? <laughs> I mean, what what is um, how do we should will a uh, will an insurance company mm. uh, insure someone for intensive care if they're not vaccinated? And I think that's that's going to be a really significant issue. Mm. My gut feeling is that we will get to a point where the vaccine passports won't be used as much, and some people won't yeah. be vaccinated. But I think the pressure will be to say, you do it at your own risk, you know, not at our risk. Why should we be paying for your right not to be vaccinated? So I don't know what you think about that sort of way of thinking. Well, as Christians, we specialize in non-discriminatory care for foolish and evil people. <laughs> We still treat someone for alcoholism or... We do, and God loves us. I mean, we don't deserve what we get from God. So my first response is, oh, gosh, I understand the impetus behind that. The user pays. Um, my second response is, no, that's absolutely not right. My third response is, geez, that's a Pandora's box because, because what you're going to end up with in the not too distant future, and this is probably a topic for another discussion, is we 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 can already you can get your genome mapped very quickly, and as as our advances in epigenetics and genetics goes on, we're going to be able to um, map out pretty quickly each of our individual risks for various outcomes. We can correlate that with health decisions we can make, and you can say, hey, Mark Deary, because of your genetic makeup, you should only ever ever eat uh, you know broccoli and peas. <laughs> And uh, your risk profile of heart attack goes up if you ever had have cheese and wine. And we know that, so we won't insure you for any health outcome based on you eating cheese and wine because, you know, and that's an efficient way of allocating health dollars or insurance. And if I was an insurance company, I may well want to do that. It just doesn't... Um, it seems horrible. But, it but, seems awfully, yeah. awfully horrible. But we are... This is we are absolutely going to have to grapple with this as a society. Yeah. And, well, and then you can roll it back even further and you say, well, actually, we're going to be able to genetically modify the children we have in utero or before conception to tweak their genetics. So is that yeah. bad? And, and every, you see, every health advance starts off curing a disease and ends up being used to confer an advantage. You know, So plastic surgery starts off treating First World War soldiers who've had half their faces blown off in the trenches, and now plastic surgery is used to enhance people's body parts, shall we say. So um, I c I'm very concerned about health economics and, the and, and what we do with that. So for that reason, at the moment, you know, 
Though we, you know, for a smoker, if you're a smoker, you've got to declare that when you apply for insurance. Oh, I, right? I think I think it's inevitable that the insurance companies um, will ask people yeah. about their insurance status, and it will affect their um, do, do they ask us premiums? Do they do they ask us for the vaccination status of our children when they when you put your kids? You know, if you I you don't think your, they do at present. No, uh, but this is, is this is this is different. This is a different order of magnitude, I think. But it's um. You know, if, if they're facing the risk that if they take the view that basically everyone's going to get COVID at some point or other, yeah, uh, and one and a half percent of those will end up in intensive care at a cost of I don't know twenty thousand dollars, then that the insurance companies will have to think about that. Here's another um, question: yeah. suppose, suppose as people have been saying in Sydney that when the intensive care wards fill up, they'll have to triage people and people who only have say less than five years life expectancy anyway and less than 80% chance of recovering uh, mm. from, the, um, from the virus uh, will, be, will be palliated instead of mm-hmm. being treated mm-hmm. because there just aren't enough beds around. And what if, what if someone says, well, shouldn't you also be asking whether they had an opportunity to get the vaccine and they weren't vaccinated as well because they've made a choice? You know, will that, will that play in? These are, these are really yeah. tricky, tricky uh, ethical issues that, that I think people will be increasingly wanting to talk about because we just won't have enough intensive care doctors and nurses for the next 10 years you know it's we're going to be short of people for a long time i i i completely agree and i think um the time to have these discussions is now not when the crisis hits and the time for christians to have a contribution in the space of medical ethics is now Mm. um and, and I, I keep thinking, saying to people, democracy is a wonderful thing, right? So what we need to do, if you're a Christian and you're a citizen of Australia, you're a citizen of heaven and you're a citizen of Australia, so a citizen of Australia, think through these things to the best of your ability and then advocate for what you think are the policies that best express the values of the kingdom of heaven and go for your life with that. But it's mm. not, and, and, but they're really complicated. And you know what? Christians will come up with different points of view on that. And that's okay. I, I love that. Like, that just says that the kingdom of heaven relativizes all the political process and all our political and ethical judgments and policies are um, are finite and contingent and we're never going to get it right. We're never going to prevent death. We're never going to bring the kingdom of God here. But now you're, you're absolutely right, Mark. These are the questions to think about and to consider maybe with a seriousness that we haven't thought about it before. Because yeah. I know, I mean, in Africa, when my parents were practicing medicine, that sort of triaging would happen all the time. You well, know? it happens already in hospitals. It's just that it's going to happen On at a, a certain scale. volume and rate. There'll, mm. be, there'll be people there saying, why are you putting my granny on palliative care? Yes. When she's 75 and, you know, could recover. And that someone will have to explain to them, we just cannot, we just don't have enough staff. But it's, they're really difficult difficult issues to face. I think one thing that's really important, which has come out for me listening to some of the things you've said to Mark, is that we need to really value our Christian fellowship and unity, um, our capacity to work together and to learn from each other. And it means I think there are some issues that cause a breakdown in unity that we we can no longer be pulling uh, Mm. on the same cart, if you know what I mean, because we disagree so deeply about certain theological principles. Um, and in, in, at the present time, actually, churches around the world have been dividing on, on issues of sexuality and gender yeah. identity, for example. 
Um, but, but at the same time, we need to be aware that um, there are many issues that we can legitimately disagree on and have a fruitful conversation, be yeah. willing to learn from each other and not um, start shouting at each other yeah, or, yeah. Or, 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 or refuse to talk to somebody, you know. And, yeah. and if, if someone uh, is unable to look you in the eye and talk to you anymore because you have a different view of vaccination, I think that's a sign that we're in trouble and, mm -hmm. and Satan's actually making more out yeah. of this than we should have let him make out of it. Yeah. Um, and so we need to think of what's a first order issue of difference and what's second and third order differences. Yeah. Um, someone once said to me, one of the nice things about being an Anglican is you can believe one thing one day and something else the next. And <laughs> I think what they meant was there are certain issues uh, on which people have a responsibility to work out what they believe. And think. yes. Yes. And that also means you don't punch someone in the nose because they think what you thought yesterday and not what you think today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so we need to be really working hard at that and listening to each other and um, finding the grace yeah. uh, to, to, to stick together and not, not fracture. There's enough fracturing already happening in the world without uh, communities of Christians yeah. being at each other's throats over these issues. In, in fact, I think our the strength of our witness through this is that we are those because we should be because we're free of fear <laughs> mm. um, we should be those who can actually hold and contain the differences and love each other across the differences and still work together and find a way to model that for a society that is fracturing um i mean the other thing i yeah yeah i think that's right yeah, I, 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 love, think the, I love that um message to young timothy from Paul, and he said, God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love. And some translations say self-control, some say a sound mind. And I think they, they go together. And, mm. um, you know, we, we don't have a spirit that should cause us to fear, but one that cause, cries Abba Father, you know, that we have yeah. an identity that's well-grounded. And, um, and that foundation of not being people of fear should actually cause us joy and hope and that we could be people who are singing yeah, in the midst of midst of adversity. Right. And um, yeah. the other thing that's been really on my mind a lot too is I was reading this week from Mark's Gospel. I think it was the Gospel for last Sunday, um, where Jesus says, "Take up your cross if you want to be my disciple. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and yeah. follow me." And of those three statements, of um, the first two about self-denial and self-sacrifice, and then to follow. And I think that's, I think, really important for us to keep in mind that the way of following Jesus is one of self-denial. It's putting yourself to death. It's not exalting mm. yourself. It's, mm. it's actually saying, what, what is God asking of me to love others, to care for others, to care for those around me in my church or my environment, not how can I fulfill myself or how can I have my, impose my will yeah. on my circumstances? That's Jesus called us to 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 walk in His path, and and we have to keep doing that. I, I've really been moved over the years when I read the epistles, letters of Peter and John and and Paul, about how deeply touched they were by Jesus' example that He laid down yeah. His life, that He didn't take offence, yeah. that He didn't respond in rejection, uh, but He responded in grace and in kind of this incredible generous hmm. spirit to people. So. I think that's where our, you know, that's where our pastoral teaching and energy needs to be focusing at the moment. How do we kind of reflect the heart of Jesus in the midst of a trial that we're experiencing? 
Well, I can't think of a better place to wrap up our conversation than that. Um, and uh, thank you very, very much. And it's been just a joy, as always, to chat. Um, and I yeah, it's great I, to talk, Mark. I really it, appreciate These yeah. are such important things. And we need to find space yeah. to talk about these things. It's so important. We mightn't get it right all the time. And, yeah. and there'll be different views, but we, we need to be willing to explore ideas think about the word of god think about mm. think about what god wants for us to mm. yeah it's so a pleasure so i hope you've enjoyed watching this if you've watched it right through to the end well done uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll look forward to seeing you next time <laughs>